0: every decision we make about what product to build, what customer segment to go after, what marketing initiative to launch, who to hire, like it's always a bet, right? And so with any bet, it could go right, it could go wrong. And so if you can make three decisions in the time it takes your competitor to make one, you know, even if you get one of those three wrong, you've still made double the number of good decisions as your competition.
1: I'm Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how did it win. This week, Anand Wall, co founder and CEO of CB Insights, a business intelligence platform that enables organizations to make technology decisions faster with more confidence via high quality data. Launched in 2010. CB Insights is on track to hit 100 million in ARR this year with over 400 employees and thousands of clients. In this episode, we talk about CB Insights' incredibly successful content strategy and discuss why the ability to prioritize is essential to growth. Let's get into it.
0: We started, uh, I'd worked in venture in M&A and the idea was to build essentially a deals database tracking financings, exits, IPOs. That was what we started out to become, today we're not that company or product. We saw another opportunity over time. We were bootstrapped for a bunch of years and so saw a bigger opportunity over time.
1: So how many years until you um, started to see the signs that the initial business model or hypothesis was not the optimal one? And how did you see that there's a better path?
0: We were revenue funded, or I guess the more common term is bootstrap, for the first six years. And... The beauty of being bootstrapped is that your customers are your investors. So we would speak to all of our customers and what we were noticing was large enterprises were signing up for the platform, but they weren't from the VC or M&A teams. And so when we talked to them, we kind of were very frankly just asked them like, "Hey, why did you sign up?" because we don't really understand what your team does. And these were, you know, folks from digital transformation or product or competitive intel, strategy, innovation teams. And what they told us was, hey, we think this data set that you have is a really interesting leading indicator, one, of where the world is going, and then two, these companies that you collect are future partners and our future vendors, and so we use it to source partnerships and, and vendor relationships. And so that was, you know, kind of unlock this insight for us that there's a much bigger market there of folks that we could help, and so... We studied that a bit, and then we realized that actually technology decisions increasingly are moving out of IT. And so because of SaaS and cloud, low-code, no-code, APIs, like this confluence of factors was actually driving technology decisions to functional heads, heads of business units. So we saw fragmentation on the buyer side, and then on the sell side, the vendors, instead of it just being IBM, Oracle, HP, Microsoft, there were all these like thousands of companies, tens of thousands of companies that were being created. And so there was this unique opportunity to kind of help this diffuse set of buyers find the vendors that could help them improve operations, drive revenue, whatever their goals might be.
1: How big was the business when you pivoted to that direction?
0: We were around 8 million ARR at that point. And I think pivot was like we still have a very large contingent of investor M&A clients but when you look at the market you know if you take a large enterprise there's one VC team there's one M&A team but they'll have multiple business units multiple heads of function so when we looked at these enterprises we thought okay there's a much bigger opportunity for us to help solve this problem for a lot more folks in the organization by expanding beyond sort of that initial group but yeah we were 8 million and then we kind of shifted our focus and, you know, that's when growth really took off.
1: Was there also fear in the business that, well, what if we are, you know, abandoning our source of money here and like chasing uh, ghosts?
0: I think there wasn't that fear just because when you are revenue funded, like you have to be very cognizant of and very focused on chasing things that have a high probability of generating revenue and so we were already bringing the register for lack of a better term on that type of client base it just by talking to them it sort of crystallized that actually this is the bigger opportunity so it didn't feel very speculative and then you know just doing some basic kind of addressable market analysis when you looked at it, it was like oh there's actually just a lot more of that type of buyer out there and so It didn't feel risky at the time. You know, There's plenty of other things as we built the company that felt risky, but that decision wasn't one of them.
1: New products replace old products. New services will replace old services. New channels emerge and old ones stop working as well. Your best fit customers change, new buyers will appear, and old ones will stop buying. This has happened to a lot of companies you know. You need to figure out when to switch focus. Disrupt yourself before others do. Cook up your next competitive advantage while milking your existing one. The age of sustainable competitive advantage is over. It's all transient. That's the lesson Jorge Rios, founder and CEO of Bridgeify, learned when their app, that had been intended as a tool for messaging at concerts, began to be used for communication during political conflicts and social unrest.
2: We didn't plan for it to be used the way that it's being used today. Our users were telling us through downloads, through messages on social media, through a lot of email, that they needed this for a different uh, use case. They needed this for a different situation than we had originally envisioned. People still use it for events. A few thousand people use it at Coachella. People still use it at schools. Nevertheless, the main, main usage right now is situations in which there is censorship, in which there is a a political problem going on. And so, yeah, I mean, we kind of had to pivot. We, we, we didn't choose a pivot, and so we built the app, and then we realized that it was being used for these other things. And then at the same time, we were building out the Bridge ISDK, which is basically software that other companies can integrate into their own mobile apps and make their apps work without the internet. So imagine one day being able to use Twitter or Facebook Messenger or a Red Cross app without, when you don't have access to data. And so we started building that in a different way. We started building that with security, with privacy, um, with anonymity in mind, because we had been led to this pivot. Our users told us that they wanted.
1: How were you acquiring customers up to that point, and how did that change?
0: From the beginning, content has been the thing that we've relied on. So back in the day, you know, OkCupid, if you remember them, you know, it was a dating site. They had this phenomenal blog that took dating data and broke it down in this very sort of funny but data-driven way. It was Nate Silver who had this politically oriented blog, again, that took data and sort of demystified politics. And so we said, well, we have this data set. We don't have the money of an S&P to take people to steak dinners. And so how do we get our name out there? And we just started publishing research content. And the only rule really was it has to have a graph. And so we would take data generally on sort of what's happening in startups and venture land and publish about that. We would then create reports. We'd send that out to media and say, hey, listen, we just published this thing about X topic, you know, X industry. And if you write about it, please link to us. And so, you know, that got some SEO juice going for us. It created some awareness, it created a bit of social proof. But content was really how we grew. We started doing a newsletter, which grew Quite slowly, you know, now it's 850,000 people, but that's often people's first introduction to CB Insights is our research and our newsletter.
1: Mm -hmm. Has that changed over time or is content still number one?
0: Yeah, content is still like, you know, it's probably the front door for us, but you know, we're 400 people now. Like, you need to become what I'd call like a full stack sales and marketing organization. So now we have. A really great group of SDRs who are doing outbound you know we do paid we, you know now I think we have the full ensemble of activities that you'd expect of a company of our size but you know we still lead with content you know it's it's very much a, a give 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 then ask type of view that we have so we try to provide a lot of value either in the data or the research that we offer and then I think we do it also with a voice that's a bit atypical in B2B Part of the thing with having 850,000 people on the newsletter is you want them to open it up every time we send it. I get a lot of pings on, hey, how'd you get to 850,000? Like if you look at our growth, it was 50 people to 70 people to like, you know, I think it took us four years to get to 1,000, right? And then like we changed the tone up and started doing some things and then like it started to grow. And so I think a lot of B2B marketing tends to be quite terrible, to be honest. And so I think we've tried to develop a, uh, irreverent but authoritative voice that keeps people reading just because it's not sort of just like hey here's another piece of data and here's another piece of data we try to keep it interesting as well
1: most marketers lack creativity and guts not data we're all content producers now millions of marketing emails cold sales pitches new blog posts podcast episodes white papers, social media updates companies are doing content marketing automation and outbound sales way better than they did 10 years ago that also means that to stand out today, what you produce needs to be way different or better than it had to be. Good examples are Harry Drey's marketing examples newsletter or Designs comic book style case studies. Whenever an idea seems too hard or takes too much work, be happy. Too hard is a decent first moat. All the easy things have already been done. At what point did you start looking around in the market also at, at the competition?
0: I like to think that we're competitor-aware but customer-obsessed, right? And so, you know, we raised a bit of money but we still haven't touched any of that. So I think customers are definitely the investor in CB Insight. So I think we try to maintain that focus but I think there's a lot to learn from looking at kind of what the competition does and being aware of them, right? I would I think of the market on sort of two axes. So for tech economy information is what I think we play in. There's players that focus on breadth of information, so they tend to be shallow in terms of the depth of information they have, but they cover lots of companies. And so there you'd have your kind of traditional data players like an S&P CapIQ. Then there's players like Gartner who go deep, but they go deep on a very small set of tech companies, mostly because it's very human intelligence driven, right? So they have analysts who talk to these companies. And so there's a scale problem that they run into. You know, we figured out ways of engaging companies to actually get information from them, to get deep information about pricing and customers and why they're better than competition, but doing it in a technology driven way. So I think we're at this intersection of, we cover lots of tech companies, like a CapIQ or any other data company. And then we have lots of deep information, like a a Gartner, but actually at a scale that's much larger. So yeah, kind of the intersection of those two is is where we sit.
1: What's stopping um, any of those competitors or a new emerging competitor to come and do exactly what you're doing?
0: The existing competitors, right, if you take somebody who is built on a human driven sort of intelligence gathering method, it's very hard for them to re-architect themselves to think about using software and using technology to do something that they believe humans are uniquely capable of doing. So, you know, I think for large companies, it's often just like inertia that makes it hard. And yeah, we're sort of counter positioned, I would say, like just from a business model perspective, it'd be hard for them to do it. You know, I think, yeah, like a fledgling company, sure, I think like that'd be great if I think it pushes us if somebody came along. You know the thing with the data, with the data business, which is our core, is you have to have an extremely high pain tolerance to do data well, right? Like I see lots of companies that want to sort of sprinkle machine learning on top of unstructured information set and hope to sell data. That just doesn't work. If you want to charge a lot of money for data, you need to invest a lot in technology, a lot in kind of manual QA to make sure that data is good and. We're just used to pain, I guess for lack of a better term. Like we spend a lot of time building the systems to generate and create and synthesize and analyze data. But yeah, there's nothing that, you know, if somebody else had sort of that pain tolerance they couldn't do. I'd say we've got a twelve year head start on them in many regards. I think it'd be hard to do, but uh but yeah, tend not to think too much about that. You know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we just go faster than everybody else, even as we get bigger. And I think that's that's probably one of our cultural tenets that I think has served us quite well.
1: It's interesting. The phrase pain tolerance is that something that you you know figured out along the way? Was that something that you uh, believed from the get-go? Yeah,
0: I've always believed that. I love the phrase like. Um, Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I think sometimes there's just there's no getting around just grinding it out. And I think the team we've built believes in that ethos too, right? Sometimes you just have to do things in sort of unscalable ways to get to the, the metric or to get to the result that you want. As you get bigger, I think it actually becomes easier to get seduced by over-engineering things and you actually spend more time doing that. What it tends to mask is a lack of understanding of the problem, right? So why build some ornate cathedral of technology when you could just do it in an Excel spreadsheet really quickly? Yeah, I've never really understood why folks do that. But I think, yeah, we've, we've always maintained sort of that like grinded out ethos within the company. And yeah, I think it's served us quite well to be sort of relentlessly resourceful when it comes to thinking about how
1: to approach problems. Have high standards for the type of work you produce and for what you accept from others. Work a little harder than others are willing to. As Anon said, tolerate a little more pain. This kind of commitment to excellence is what creates the type of culture you want to be in and what gets you and your company places your competitors won't reach. You don't get to poor customer support by not caring once. You don't get to a mediocre blog by posting a meh article once. You don't become an average performer by not trying hard at one time. Your actions become habits. Excellence is not a one-time thing you do. It's a habit. The only way to get to excellence is to do mediocre work first. Nobody gets it right from the get-go, so don't let fear hold you back. Experience and right guidance will get you there. And this is where excellent management comes in. The best managers ask for the best from their team, and get it You mentioned um, being faster than the competition is that a priority for you and what are you specifically doing to make the boat go faster
0: I think as an insurgent company which is how we think of ourselves like it's the number one weapon that we have right because we're Always making decisions in the face of uncertainty, right? And so every decision we make about what product to build, what customer segment to go after, what marketing initiative to launch, who to hire, like it's always a bet, right? And so with any bet, it could go right, it could go wrong. And so if you can make three decisions and hopefully they're good in the time it takes your competitor to make one, you know, even if you get one of those three wrong, you've still made double the number of good decisions as your competition. So that's sort of the thinking that we have. In terms of how we go quickly, a lot of it starts with just hiring people who have good instincts on how to make good decisions, right? And so that comes down to ruthless prioritization, right? It's easy to get distracted by shiny objects or new things that come up. And so having ruthless focus about, you know, the essential few versus the trivial many. So if you figure that out, that's really helpful. And then from there having really high decision quality and decision hygiene around why did we make this call? And so I think the things we try to avoid are um, groupthink. Like, you know, decisions should not be democratically made, right? They should be made based on the merit of the idea and the merit of the data or information that you bring. They shouldn't be made because, hey, hot company X in our space is doing this and hence we should do that. So, you know, trying to, you know, kind of think from like a first principles perspective... Once we figured out the priorities, helps us get to the right way to approach and solve a problem. And then hopefully doing that quickly. The term we use internally a lot is napkin math, right? Like how do we just sketch it out quickly and say, okay, if this goes right, how big is the reward, right? And so sometimes even if the thing goes remarkably well, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's going to only generate that. And then you're like, well, It's not even worth doing. And so let's just abandon that and move on to the next thing. So, yeah, I think it starts with right prioritization, then really good people that are great at making decisions. If we do those two things well, a lot tends to fall into place.
1: Knowing what to focus on to move the needle is massive. It's the difference between minimal growth and 50% growth. You could tinker with something on your website, but if it doesn't matter, the ROI on that is zero the lever might be something else. Prioritize identifying what actually matters. It's too easy to get caught in the whirlwind. Have an ambitious vision for what you're building. This helps you prioritize and do the good work without chasing the next shiny thing. Building modes takes time, but be deliberate about which ones you're building. Here's Steve Jobs addressing Apple employees about the importance of focus and saying no to ideas that would not help them win.
3: I know some of you spent a lot of time working on stuff that we put a bullet in the head of. I apologize. I feel your pain, but Apple suffered for several years from lousy engineering management. I, I have to say it. And there were people that were going off in 18 different directions doing arguably interesting things in each one of them. Good engineers, lousy management. And what happened was, you look at the, the, the farm that's been created with all these different animals going in different directions, and it doesn't add up, it, the, the, the total is less than the sum of the parts. And so we had to decide what are the fundamental directions we're going in, and what makes sense and what doesn't. And there were a bunch of things that didn't. And microcosmically, they might have made sense. Macrocosmically, they made no sense. And, you know, the hardest thing is you, when you think about focusing, right? You think, well, focusing is, is saying yes, no. Focusing is about saying no.
1: So strategy is, you know, where to play, meaning like which companies you're going after and how to win your theory of advantage. How clear are you on, on those two things and the rest of your team?
0: We think of the moat that we can build is a data moat, right? And so we started with this machine learning derived data that we were collecting from government documents, press releases, et cetera. What happened over time, and it's actually interesting because about six years ago we reached out to companies and said, hey, give us your data. You know, Tell us about your products, tell us about your pricing, about your competition, and it was radio silence, right? And we, they didn't know who we were, right? And, uh, and so we recently went back to them last year and said, hey, basically with the same request, right? And what was interesting was the response has been totally different, right? And mostly because we actually now appeal to their enlightened self-interest, right? Which is CB Insights is a little bit more of a known quantity, we have a newsletter that they know is influential with buyers of technology investors of technology acquirers of technology and so in the last 11 months you know 10,000 companies have given us really off the grid information right like stuff you couldn't crawl if you wanted to and so what's interesting is now like company x will say hey here's why we're better than company y and z and Company Y and Z will now see that when they come on their profile and they'll say, oh, company X is saying this about us. We need to now do an analyst briefing as well. And so this interesting flywheel has begun where companies are now giving us information because helps them get their name out there, helps them get in front of buyers, investors, etc. You know, it's everybody from seed stage to your, you know, decacorns, right? Uh, And publicly traded companies now are submitting information too. But yeah, that was something we tried to do six years ago and people were kind of, you know, in a nice way, just told us to kind of F off just with their silence. And now I think we bring something to the table and so they're a lot more receptive to it.
1: What has will get more. If you rank for a bunch of stuff on Google, you will start ranking for even more stuff as content writers looking for articles to cite will find you and link to your content. Whoever manages to get big first in a category will keep getting bigger. If you look at the companies in any category, they are mostly at the top because they manage to get big faster than others. This is the law of increasing returns, a phenomenon first identified by Professor Brian Arthur.
4: It became very clear to me that there's a phenomenon going on in technology that you didn't see so much in the rest of the economy. The sort of firms I was looking at, if one of them got ahead out of half a dozen, it could get further ahead. You couldn't predict which one would get ahead. It would start to get enough advantage that it could dominate the market and get still further ahead. It would lock in. It would have so much cost advantage or now we'd say so much user base that it would be hard to dislodge. Microsoft got ahead with certain contracts very early in the game. They locked in a lot of the personal software in the 1980s. Similarly, other systems came along since. There were search engines like Alta Vista, as well as Google and others. Google gets ahead and began to dominate that market and now has it pretty well locked in. We now call that network effects. Companies like that set up a network of users. You want to be with the dominant network. Tell
1: me about your uh, marketing strategy and competing on brand. Is there any underlying philosophy that guides your bets and what you guys are doing?
0: We come back to content quite a bit, right? Because I think it's a thing that's gotten us quite far. And You know, we're lucky to have, or lucky might not be the right word, but we've built over time this newsletter. And so we have this direct line to our customers. And so I don't really love the owned audience versus rented audience term because we actually don't own this audience. Like every time we send the newsletter, they have the right to unsubscribe. And so we have to kind of constantly serve them and, and get them to renew their subscription, even though it's free. But content is where we tend to lead, right? I think, uh, from a brand positioning perspective, and I'd say like we still have work to do here, like the thing we look at is how to be different, not just better, right? In a better battle, the advantage accrues to the incumbent, right? Or it accrues to the cheaper player, right? In a battle of different, like, well, there's nobody else like you, right? So when I think of that breadth versus depth of information piece, like there, I feel like we're uniquely positioned. Actually, nobody else could say they have this thing, because we're just different, right? I think if we got into a, a better battle versus Gartner, right? Like, yeah, they're a $25 billion market cap company with an obscene amount of resources. Like, that's like not a fight that you want to pick.
1: How conscious are you uh, with your, you know, founder persona doing marketing? Because like, I've seen you for years posting, you know, hate mail that you get. And then, you know, this is like how you promote the newsletter is the, the funny hate you get. Like, so is, is that strategic? How how are you going about it?
0: So we used to send the newsletter as CB Insights. And then we, you know, we A-B test a lot of things, right? And then we sent it as, for me, Anand Sanwal, right? Just as an experiment. And the open rates were higher. So we said, okay, interesting. Let's go test that. It continued to be higher. I think at the core just because you sell to B2B doesn't mean people are personality lists or have left their interests of other types all at, like, when they log into Zoom this morning, they just became this automaton that's boring, right? And so I think, like, keeping that personality, right? The same person who is making million-dollar purchases of technology is also looking at cat memes, right? And is also surfing Reddit and you know, and, and often within the same hour. So I think when you look at one, we try to write the newsletter as if I was writing to w- my like one friend, right? And like, I think what we want to be is the irreverent, authoritative, smart friend that you have. And so I think when you think about the audience as one person, it actually helps quite a bit. I use Twitter and LinkedIn candidly as like, um, I guess the best analogy is like what stand ups do. They go to like open mic nights on like a Tuesday and they try out material. And then like whatever lands, they go on their Saturday show. Oh, yeah. Right. And so my Saturday show is the CB Insights newsletter. And LinkedIn and Twitter are just where I try stuff out and most of it bombs. But if it doesn't get engagement on those channels, it's not going in the newsletter. And if it does well, there it goes in the newsletter. But yeah, it's it's just having a voice. Right. I think that's you know, B2B is just really, it's beautiful for us because B2B marketing is generally god-awful. And so it's actually much easier to stand out, right? I think if we were like a consumer news company or something, like I can't even imagine the level of competition there. But in B2B, like everybody's like trying to talk like grown up in their marketing and, you know, use a lot of words to say nothing. And so it's actually like a beautiful place for us to be competing, just because yeah, the competition is generally quite terrible.
1: So you've been now at it for twelve plus years. Um, yeah, picked up uh, a few business lessons along the way. If you had to, you know, pass on some advice to fellow founders, what would be like, you know, advice you would give?
0: I think my biggest mistakes in building the company probably came down to. Culture, clarity, and communication, right? When we were 10 people or 20 people and in a really cramped, crappy office, like culture was just, you like lived in it, right? You didn't have to tell anybody about the culture. The environment told you the culture, right? It's like, we're scrappy. We have no money. I'm writing your paychecks by hand and I'm asking you not to cash them till Tuesday because there's not enough money in the bank. And so you like, you knew the culture by that. As we got bigger, I wasn't as intentional about culture as I should have been. And so culture happens or you can shape it, right? And then, you know, what works at 50 doesn't work at 100, doesn't work at 200. So I'd say like I've, we've gotten a lot better there, but I think articulating our values, ensuring they flow through everything we do, who we hire, who we promote, who we reward, who we part ways with, was something we haven't been as good historically. I think we're now way, way better communication, probably the other big one. Again, a lot of these aren't problems at the 25 person stage, but as we've gotten bigger, you just can't over communicate enough. And now that we're a much more distributed company, making sure that we are being really deliberate about over communicating. Right. And so sometimes, you know, talking about connecting buyers and sellers on the platform, like to me, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. And, but it's, you know, I'm not the audience, right? Like the audience is the rest of the team and all these folks that are have been at the organization often less than six months. So I think figuring out methods of communicating with the team, our team's done a really good job, I think, of introducing more all-hands. So we do an all-hands like every six weeks. I now write an internal newsletter to the company, and then I record it as an internal podcast for the org, since people like to consume information in different ways that tries to break down accomplishments and what's going well, how the market's looking, et cetera. So that's culture, communication, and then clarity. And I've been very guilty of this, like make the main thing, the main thing. You know, in the early days we had the newsletter, we should have just doubled, triple, quadrupled down on the newsletter. But, you know, folks were like, oh, maybe we should do video or we should do this or we should do that. Every time we've not focused, I think it's been to our detriment, right? Like instead of trying to do 12 different things well, Hey this is working. Let's just wring as much juice out of that until it's dead and then we'll figure out what's next, right? Same with the product. We got distracted by trying to do too many things in product so like having clarity on like, hey here's who we serve, here's what they need and let's just do that And even if some other idea comes up, if it's not in that lane, like just quickly say no to it. And so yeah, those would be the, the kind of the three that I think you know if I could have some
1: do-overs on I would certainly take. So, what are the three key strategies that spelled success for CB Insights? One, they identified opportunities for growth into bigger markets by staying in constant contact with their customers.
0: The beauty of being bootstrapped is that your customers are your investors. So we would speak to all of our customers. And so that unlocked this insight for us that there's a much bigger market there of folks that we could help.
1: Two. They tried to be as militant as possible about prioritizing projects with the greatest potential for growth and passing on everything else.
0: It's easy to get distracted by shiny objects or new things that come up. And so having ruthless focus about the essential few versus the trivial many. So if you figure that out, that's really helpful.
1: Three, they created a highly successful content engine thanks to original research and a unique tone of voice.
0: We try to provide a lot of value, either in the data or the research that we offer. And then I think we do it also with a voice that's a bit atypical in B2B. You know, part of the thing with having 850,000 people on the newsletter is you want them to open it up every time we send it.
1: One last takeaway from Anand.
0: I like to think that we're competitor aware, but customer obsessed, right? And so, you know, we raised a bit of money, but we still haven't touched any of that. So I think customers are definitely the Investor in CB Insight. So I think we try to maintain that focus.
1: And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lam. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.